you can turn with me again to Luke's gospel. We are continuing along in Luke's gospel. We are now at the beginning of Luke chapter 13. Before we read today's passage, verses 1 to 9, let's begin with a word of prayer. Well, Lord God, we come this morning to your word and to hear the preaching of your word because you have ordained that this is a way you minister to your people. In your wisdom, you have ordained that sitting under the preaching of your word, that hearing the word of God preached is a way that you establish our hearts in the truth of Scripture. And it is a way through the power of the Spirit in the preaching of the word that you establish our hearts in the gospel in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask now that you would do that. You would fill us with your Spirit and that you would shape us and change us by the truth of your Word. We pray these things with great confidence in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can turn with me to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be on the screen behind you. Hear God's holy and authoritative Word. There were some present at that very time, who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord, may he write its truth upon our hearts. Well, in the opening verses of Luke chapter 13, Jesus is already confronting assumptions in the crowd. And as we make our way through these first nine verses of Luke 13, there's actually three assumptions, dangerous assumptions, that he confronts. And as is usually the case in the Gospel of Luke, when we find Jesus pressing against something in the crowd, we should assume he's pressing against the same thing in us. We see three assumptions that Jesus is probing this morning. Dangerous assumptions that the crowd has in regards to suffering. Dangerous assumptions the crowd has about themselves. Who they are in their spiritual state. And finally, a dangerous assumption that the entire crowd has about repentance. And those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. The first thing we see are dangerous assumptions about suffering. Now, in a very abrupt way, people bring up this recent massacre to Jesus. This bloody murder of a group of Galileans. This place where Jesus and, and many of the disciples are from. And it's a gruesome thing to imagine. Apparently there's a group of Jewish pilgrims who've traveled from Galilee down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. 
It's most likely they're offering them at the Passover since that's the only time where lay people would actually offer sacrifices themselves in the temple. So they've gone down, they've made the pilgrimage for Passover. And while they're there at the temple, Pilate makes an example of them. Pilate has them slaughtered in the middle of the temple as they're making sacrifices. Now, the region of Galilee was known as a place where rebellion and kind of revolutionary sentiment was common. So maybe it's sort of like the Boston, Massachusetts of the 13 original colonies. Maybe that's kind of what Galileans are known for back then. Maybe that's why Pilate's making an example. We don't know. We don't actually know if these people who were slaughtered were actually revolutionaries or if they're just cast into the group with everyone else. What's clear, though, is that the slaughter is so brutal that by the time it's finished the blood of these worshipers is indistinguishable from the blood of the lambs they were killing on the altar. So it's a horrendous scene. And so they mention to Jesus, they want to get His take on the brutality. What do you think happened, Jesus? Did you hear about this? It might be that they're testing Him. Does He sympathize with the revolutionaries? Is he sufficiently anti-Roman enough? We can't be totally sure. We don't totally know what's going on with that. Jesus, though, sees something sinister lurking behind the surface of their reporting of this tragic death of these people. Jesus sees but behind their bringing up of this event that there's a theology at play. There's something that he wants to address. It's the unspoken assumption about what it means to suffer. Namely, that if someone suffers, you can draw a direct line of cause and effect. If they are suffering, it's because they have sinned. Put another way, if you suffer, if you face hardship, if calamity blindsides you, the one thing you can know for sure in the midst of the calamity is that it's happening, you're suffering for your sin. The unspoken thing in the crowd's hearts that Jesus addresses is that only sinners suffer. It's the generally held belief in that day. If you're suffering, if a tower falls on you, the only reason a tower would fall on you is if you were some sort of extraordinary, unusual, spectacular sinner. It's the theology of Job's friends. In Job 4, verse 7, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? The assumption is never. The righteous people don't suffer at the hands of tragedies. Or so Job's friends tell him as he sits having suffered his own tragedy. It echoes the assumption of the disciples. It's not just the crowd. It's not just Job's friends. Even the disciples think this way in John 9.1. Jesus is walking along and he sees a man blind from birth and his disciples said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see the assumption. If you're blind, it has to be some sort of punishment. Jesus confronts this dangerous assumption about suffering head on. Do you think, he asks, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you. The idea that only sinners suffer 
We don't often think of it this way, but the idea that only sinners suffer is in some ways the dark underbelly of prosperity theology. Prosperity theology says, if you believe hard enough, blessing will come. But the flip side of that, the dark underbelly of that is, if bad things come, it's because you haven't believed. It's because you've been disobedient. It's not a new theology. There's nothing new under the sun. For generations and millennia, God's people have assumed that suffering comes to sinners. Now, sin certainly has its consequences. The book of Proverbs makes that clear, right? It might be that suffering is the result of sin, but it's not a guarantee that suffering is the result of sin. In fact, what's happening here is, is, is the exact opposite of who God is. This, this assumption, these people are suffering because God pushed over a tower to crush them because they had sinned extraordinarily. The constant refrain of the Old Testament the constant refrain is not that God is, has like an itchy trigger finger, just waiting to punish, just, just waiting to blast us. But that's how many people seem to picture him. It's certainly how the crowds view things. The belief that the prerequisite for suffering is always sin is a fundamental and profound misunderstanding of the gospel itself. It's owing to a view that God is perpetually angry. That He's eager to punish. That God sits in heaven and He is quick to lash out. That He's only a hair's breadth, a moment away from crushing us at any given time. But that's not who the Bible presents to us. The Old Testament, again and again, the consistent refrain is not that God is eager to punish. The repeated refrain of Scripture is like Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The first time that promise appears in Numbers, it's tagged with, He forgives iniquity and transgression. The character of God isn't that He's quick to punish. It's that He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And so when we draw a straight line between suffering and sin, if someone suffers, sin is involved. What we're actually doing is impugning God's character. You're contradicting the way God reveals His character in Scripture. And more than just impugning God's character, you're cutting yourself off from the comfort God wants us to experience in the midst of our suffering. This was freshly made aware to me this week. We were down at Voice of the Martyrs as we go each year to serve VOM as they serve the persecuted church. You don't go to a place like Voice of the Martyr and not be reminded of the way that countless people are suffering for the name of Jesus throughout the world. I was reading in a book they have called IMN. The book is, is part of an initiative based on the reality that when ISIS flooded through Iraq, part of what they did was they drew an Arabic N on the wall of homes that Christians resided in. The N standing for Nazarene, standing for these are Jesus people. And so the initiative from VOM is to say, IMN, that 
Me, Matthew Wasink in, in Lenexa, Kansas. I am N. I stand with my suffering fellow believers in Iraq. And in that book that they've sent out with that initiative, there was the story, you've maybe heard of it or remembered. A year ago, there was, there was a brutal suicide bomber attack in Pakistan. The most brutal attack on Christians in the history of a country with a history of attacks on Christians. And these suicide bombers, it actually sounds like our passage in Luke. They went into a church and they detonated their bombs and over 100 people were killed and over 100 people, 150 people were maimed and injured. It was a devastating thing. And you read the story about one of the women there. Her name was Kalita. She was eight months pregnant. And one of the pieces of shrapnel, one of the ball bearings ripped through her belly and, and killed her unborn child. And her legs were shattered and her arm was shattered. And, and then she received substandard medical care. And so the rods they put in her legs rusted and she got a massive infection and almost died. And you hear those stories and you recognize the dangerous assumption that's sitting in this text. Did she lose her baby because she was a flagrant sinner? Did a hundred of her brothers and sisters in Christ lose their lives as they went into worship because of some extraordinary transgression? No, the, the Bible doesn't teach us to view reality that way, does it? And yet there's something lurking in our hearts that thinks that way. And when we entertain this dangerous assumption that suffering is always the result of sin, it mars God's character, but it also cuts us off from actually caring for other believers. You can't walk out Hebrews 13.3, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That's not the crowds in Luke 13. They're kind of pointing them and distancing themselves. Hebrews 13 says, no, you remember them. You pray with them. You consider yourself part of the same body and members with them in their imprisonment. And as much as we can embrace that with something like VOM, I think it still gets hard in the nitty-gritty of life. I remember sitting with a couple who had lost a young child. And understandably, they were just absolutely racked with grief. There had been tears and there had been questions. One of those times where you just sort of sit with them and you hold them and you cry with them, you pray with them. But most of the time, you're just quiet. And the husband at one point pulled me aside and confessed, I think my child died because of a certain past sin. And he's just got tears pouring down his face. And you can just see that he's pleading with me to give him assurance that his child isn't dead as direct punishment for his sin. It was heartbreaking to recognize that that's what he's struggling with. As he sits in the hospital, as, as he puts his child in the grave, that's what's keeping him up at night. But the gospel contradicts this narrative. For those who are in Christ, God is not against us. 
God is not eager to punish. In fact, the gospel informs us that the Father, for those who are in Christ, has already poured out punishment. There's already been a calamity. There's already been a tragic death for our sins. It was the tragic death of Jesus dying in our place as our substitute. And the gospel tells us that that happened so that now, in Christ, God is actively working all things together for our good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We think of that verse and we sometimes think it's, it's for the righteous people when they suffer. And we forget that the gospel tells us that all of us outside of Christ are not righteous. We've only been made righteous in Christ. And so the punishment we deserve has been poured out on Jesus. And now, because that punishment fell on Him and not on us, now all things are working together for our good. That's what the gospel tells us. If we don't combat this dangerous assumption about suffering, how do you stand in a hospital with a father crying, asking you, did my sin cause the death of my son? Did my sin cause the death of my child? It's a significant thing to recognize the dangerous assumption that says suffering only ever happens because of our sin. More than just bad theological assumptions, though, there's another thing at play. The people in the crowd, and by extension, us as well, can hold dangerous assumptions about their own spiritual state. We took a break last week as Dave preached, so I'll give you a little reminder. Remember, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus concludes the chapter with a series of warnings. The Master's going to come and He's going to return. Not when you're ready. And if the Master comes back and you're not being faithful as a servant, it won't be a good thing. Judgment is coming. He's been keeping on this Lucan theme of repentance and the need for repentance. And so with that in mind, from Luke chapter 12, Luke 13 starts out, you can literally translate verse 1, now on the same occasion. There's no gap in time here. This isn't weeks later. This isn't a different group of people. This is the same crowd that just heard Jesus say, judgment is coming. You can figure out the weather. You know when the wind blows off the Mediterranean that rain is coming. You know when the wind blows from the south in the desert that it's going to get hot. You can tell the weather and I'm in front of you and you can't interpret what's happening. So that same crowd, he tells this, he gives them this answer about the Galileans. And their assumption is, their first instinct is to hear all of that about impending judgment and to point to someone else. Jesus is just incredulous with them. Are you listening? <laughs> Are you paying attention at all? Like, What's going through your minds? Those people in Galilee weren't slaughtered. That, that tower didn't crush those people in Siloam because they were evil. No, I tell you, Jesus answered them. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm warning you about judgment. And you're saying, well, yeah, what about these people? They already died. They didn't die because they were worse sinners. But don't you understand? They've all assumed the warnings are for somebody else. They've made this dangerous assumption about their own spiritual state. 
in a significant way that they've been blinded by their own self-righteousness. If it wasn't so tragic, it'd be a fascinating psychological study. How is it that a guy is preaching to them and warning them about repentance and coming judgment and their psychological reflexes to say, yeah, but they're worse. There's something going on in their hearts. Luke 12, these warnings to remain steady, to stay vigilant, to bear fruit, that Jesus will bring division. And their response is, yeah, but did you hear about the people who got slaughtered during worship? We've never been slaughtered during worship, Jesus. No, I tell you, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The lure of self-righteousness is that it allows us to constantly identify others who are worse sinners. It frees us from the conviction of our own shortcomings as we self-righteously shift guilt onto other people. The Spirit has us in the crosshairs of conviction, and you grab your buddy and pull him in front. That's what self-righteousness does. In in one of the classics of, of Western literature, Dante's Divine Comedy, there's a scene that takes place. He, he envisions these terraces where there's different sins that are taking place. And on one of the terraces, the third terrace, it's called the Terrace of Wrath. And in Dante's epic poem, the Divine Comedy, on, on this, this Terrace of Wrath, there's people who are sitting there whose besetting sin is essentially self-righteous anger. Not exactly what we expect him to kind of put the target on, right? But he does. It's an entire scene where he examines and astutely depicts that these people are consumed with self-righteous anger. And one of the things he does in the poem is he depicts this third terrace, the terrace of wrath, as being thick with smoke. It's not that there's smoke coming out of their ears and their self-righteousness. The point Dante is making is that this, this thick smoke shows us, it's, it's imagery that helps us to see self-righteousness blinds us. The thick smoke leaves everyone on this terrace completely incapable of examining their surroundings and having their bearings corrected and really knowing what's going on. Self-righteous anger, self-righteous blame shifting is like thick blinding smoke. A self-righteous person is incapable of seeing reality correctly. He can't see two inches in front of his face. His self-righteous moral superiority creates this dense fog. And so he's completely unaware of the peril that he's in. It's precisely this that in another classic cultural artifact from Western civilization, in Rembrandt's painting of the martyrdom of St. Stephen, there's so many amazing things about the painting. First of all, he did it when he was 19 years old. So all of you, you budding artists at 19, are you creating classics that centuries later are going to be hanging and selling for millions? So he paints this painting at 19, and it's the painting, it's a famous painting of Stephen being martyred. And Rembrandt is this, this master of light and detail, right? And so he uses light to just draw your eyes naturally to parts of the painting he wants you to focus on. The things that are outside of the light are just, just filler. They're just filling detail. And so as you'd imagine, in this painting, 
it shows St. Stephen right in the middle of the light. This beam of light comes right across the painting, and Stephen's in the middle of it. But behind Stephen, in the background, is the crowd. And this crowd is consumed by their self-righteous anger, their self-righteous hatred of this Jesus follower. And the skill of Rembrandt is seen when you look into the faces of the crowd. They've got these huge rocks in their hands, and they're, they're reaching back to throw them. But if you look at their faces, there's just this almost animalistic look to them. Their self-righteousness has left them almost looking as if they're not human. Almost like they've lost their humanity. As long as we are convinced of our own self-righteousness, of our own righteous standing, our own moral superiority, it's impossible to see the righteousness of Christ. Here is a man dying for his faith in the Messiah. And the self-righteous around him are holding stones to crush him to death. Blinded by the smoke of our own moral superiority. Self-righteousness means we're incapable of seeing our need for Christ's provision. This is Jesus' warning to the crowd in Luke 13 and to us this morning. It's entirely possible to trust in our own righteousness, to trust in your own moral achievements, your own holy things that you're doing, your own goodness, to trust in those things so exclusively that you can't trust in Christ. A wise Puritan once said, we must be watchful not only for our sins, for our duties may also undo us. Don't just be watchful for your sins. Be watchful for the way our hearts have a tendency to take good, holy things and to twist them into trophies of righteousness that we put our hope in instead of Jesus. And that's the real brilliance of Rembrandt's painting. He has all the characters you'd expect. Like I said, Stephen's in the middle. The beam of light is shining on him. He's standing there. This contradiction of the angry, self-righteous mob. And here's this, this meek man dying for Christ and praying for those who are killing him. And he's looking up to the side to heaven. And his gaze goes past this young man who's sitting at the back of the crowd covered with cloaks. It's Saul, soon to be Paul. It's all the usual characters you'd expect, except for one. There's an anachronistic character in the painting. If you look and you know the history of the painting, just behind Stephen, in the middle of the self-righteous mob that's slaughtering this man, there's a face. Not connected to a body, just a face just sitting in the crowd. The face is Rembrandt's own face. It's such a discerning moment. Rembrandt painted his own face into the crowd of the self-righteous. It's a humble recognition that as he looked into his own heart, he saw that he was not all that different from the crowd, ready to stone Stephen, full of confidence in their own rightness, their own holiness. It is a devastating thing for self-righteousness to infect a church. It is a deadly thing for self-righteousness to take root in a local body. 
And when that happens, you start listening to sermons and applying them to your neighbor, right? You're quick to see your own virtues. You're quick to see the way that you are mature, right? And you're quick to whisper about another person's faults. It's a poison to the health of the body. You view your family as morally superior to that family over there. When this kind of self-righteousness takes root, factions grow. And these factions look at each other, and all the factions are looking at each other thinking, well, they're not as holy as we are. We're the place where maturity is happening. The nature of the human heart is that we are all susceptible to this creeping elevation of our own worth and our own moral superiority. I was reaching I was recently reading an article. It was more of a a biographical confession. And it was about a young man who on a Sunday morning had his own self-righteousness revealed for all its nastiness. Now mercifully it was only revealed to him. It wasn't like the whole church saw it. But it was a sobering thing. And he described just how he had become blind, how inaccurately he had viewed himself and how ungraciously he was viewing the believers around him. On this given Sunday, he was in worship and they were singing. And you know, he's, a, he's a seminary trained guy. He knows the nature of worship and the call to, to worship God with all our heart, strength, mind, and soul. The, the places in the Psalms where it talks about expressing worship with our hands, Right? expressing our affections in the midst of worship. So he's doing this. He's a full believer. You engage your whole heart in worship. And so he's worshiping. His, his hands are raised. He's calling out. He's praying. He's clapping. And as he's worshiping and just, just full of the Spirit, he assumes, he notices that the guy in front of him is just standing there. And this older gentleman in front of him, as he watches song after song, does not even appear to be singing. Not only is he not raising his hands, his hands are just in his pockets. And and the guy writing the article just said, I was just looking at him just thinking, what is your problem? We are here to worship God. The true and living God is, we're in his presence. We're gathered as people. And you're going to stand here like a lump on a log with your hands in your pocket and not worship him? he's He's just vacillating between I love you, Jesus. What is your problem? You're glorious, God. You are adult. And just kind of oblivious to what was going on in his heart. And he said they got to the end of worship and and he'd been stewing on it for a couple songs and the pastor gave his obligatory, now greet those around you. And the guy turns and like a 10,000 pound punch to the gut, his eyes are blood red. And his cheeks are covered with tears. And he hasn't been singing. Because the entire time in worship, he's been weeping. He turns to him and he says, first things out of his mouth, though our sins were as scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. Isn't the mercy of God amazing? (laughs) Glory to God! What's wrong with this guy? And then, boom. 
the smoke and the fog are lifted. Isn't the mercy of God amazing? He doesn't treat us as our self-righteous sins deserve. What an amazing moment of self-discovery for this man. I love how, how John Stott puts it in his commentary on Galatians. Every time, every time we look to the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. Your curse I am suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Did you hear about the Galileans? No. I'm at the foot of the cross and I'm freshly reminded my trust is only in His blood. What a reminder about the dangerous assumption of our spiritual condition when we're blinded by self-righteousness. The final dangerous assumption is about the nature of repentance. Jesus perceives in the crowd a self-righteousness. He perceives in a crowd incorrect thoughts about suffering. And along with all of that package, He recognizes they are completely failing to understand that this message of repentance is for them. That's what self-righteousness does. It's everybody else who has to repent. I can sit down with anybody in the church and have coffee with them and give them the ten reasons I think they need to repent. That's what a self-righteous person thinks. That's how they interact with people. Those lists are just unfolding in their mind. This assumption it's always others who have to repent. Or the other dangerous assumption, maybe actually, oh, there might be some things i got to get straightened out. But there's always tomorrow. There's always time down the road. Jesus emphatically confronts these assumptions. Twice he declares in verse 3 and verse 5, identical phrases, he's driving home the point. No, I tell you, it's not the Galileans and the people under the tower who are extraordinary sinners. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you with all likewise will perish. I'm not giving these messages to go home and talk to your neighbor or your mother-in-law. I'm cutting to your heart. Oswald Chambers is exactly correct when he writes, The entrance into the kingdom of God is through sharp, sudden pains of repentance, colliding with man's respectable goodness. Then the Holy Spirit who produces these struggles begins the formation of the Son of God in the person's life. The foundation of Christianity, Chambers writes, the foundation of Christianity is repentance. There is no entering the kingdom outside of repentance. So Jesus tells the story of a fig tree. He wants to draw this truth out. 
It's not uncommon in that day to plant a fig tree in your vineyard. The beautiful thing about a fig tree is they're not supposed to require much work. They grow in that part of the country, and you, you plant them. The law tells you for three years you don't pick the fruit. That's the law. It's God being really helpful to people and just saying, I'm going to make it a law that when you plant a fig tree, you can't pick the fruit for three years. It's not mature yet. So I'm going to tell you, you can't do it. So that after three years, the fruit's really nice and choice. You've allowed it to mature. But they just sort of grow on their own. That's what fig trees do. And so here this guy has planted a fig tree and, and he's given it its period of waiting. And now he's come. It's mature. It's time. Comes the first year, no fruit. What's wrong with my fig tree? Comes back the second year. Still no fruit. I'll be patient. I'll come a third year. Still no fruit. And then at the urging of the vine dresser, he, he's willing to allow for a whole another year. At the urging of the vine dresser, we'll like take extra measures for this tree. We'll dig a trench around it. And we'll cover it with, with fertilizer and manure. We'll, we'll add extra nutrients to get fruit from this tree. But Jesus warns, at that point, if there's no fruit, the tree will be cut down. It echoes the words of John the Baptist at the beginning of the Gospel in Luke chapter 3. To the crowds, John says, they're coming to be baptized. They want their spiritual experience. Another emblem of righteousness. Another trophy of righteousness. John says to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Go back to Oswald Chambers' quote, The entrance into the kingdom of God is through sharp, sudden pains of repentance colliding with man's respectable goodness. You're not good. You're a brood of vipers. Then the Holy Spirit who produces these struggles, the Spirit who brings about repentance, begins the formation of the Son of God in the person's life. You enter the kingdom of God through repentance. And when that repentance is real, you start to look like the Son of God. And if you're never looking like the Son of God, first year, no fruit. Second year, no fruit. Third year, no fruit. Manure, fertilizer, care, extra water, still no fruit. There's a judgment coming. Real repentance bears fruit. It reveals itself not just in words, but in a lifestyle. The lifestyle of the kingdom that Luke is describing for us. If he had to put a point on that lifestyle, it's this. The chief fruit of repentance is it's a lifestyle that returns again and again to the person of Jesus. Repentance is all about returning to the person of Christ. The failure of the crowds is they're doing the wrong kind of repenting. They're repenting and they're failing to see the Messiah. Jesus is mercifully warning us. This story, you read about a fig tree and the guy is getting ready to trap and you're like, man, maybe God does have an itchy trigger finger. No. There's mercy all over this passage. He waits for the tree to mature and then for three years patiently comes looking for fruit. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He will authorize the trench. He will authorize extra grace. 
But there comes a point where judgment arrives. Jesus is mercifully warning us. The story is telling us of God's patience, but it's also telling us, repent. Jesus is pleading with us this morning, return to Him. Joel 2.12 Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart. Even now, return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't pretend like you're repenting. Really give me your hearts. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. I hadn't thought of this person in probably a decade. As I was preparing this morning, wasn't even going to be part of the sermon. I thought of a kid I knew in high school. His name was Nate Leslie. I think we called him Los Ojos. Is Ojos the word for eyes in Spanish? He kind of had big eyes. <laughs> so that was kind of our joking nickname for Leslie. And he was a nice kid. He was a gregarious kid, loving life kid. And he was just always kind of one of those kids that he was nice didn't know the Lord, but you kind of always thought eventually he's going to get it together. And I remember my junior year, he was a senior coming to school on Monday and finding out that on Sunday night he was driving down the road and went to pass a tractor going over a hill and collided with another truck and he was killed. And it just stunned us. And I remember this table of his friends and these girls just weeping. And it was just this sobering moment of recognizing we have no idea. And the dangerous assumption of repentance is that there's always tomorrow. But Jesus beckons us today. Yet, even now, return to me with all your heart. In a few moments, we're going to go to the table in communion. At Providence, we invite everyone to take communion with us. Provided you've been baptized, you've made a credible profession of faith in Christ, and you're living in accountable relationships with other believers. We're going to go to the table, but I want us to remember as we go there, the table is a place of repentance. It's the place where we're reminded that Christ went to the cross to secure for us our repentance. As He dies on the cross, He's purchasing your repentance. Have you ever thought of the cross in that way? He's dying to ensure that your heart of stone will become a heart of flesh. The table reminds us that Christ goes to the cross for individuals. He died for us, the righteous, for the unrighteous. He suffered for us, the sinless one, for sinners. And it's a reminder as we come to the table that He welcomes us. To take and to eat and to drink, to spiritually feast in Him. All of that language that we're used to when we celebrate communion, right? But part of what we're doing when we come to the table is recognizing that the table represents Jesus with His arms wide saying, Come to Me. Return to me.
Repentance isn't something you just do at the beginning of your life in Christ. Repentance is a lifestyle. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. And every time we look at the cross, every time we come to the table, Christ is saying, return to me. Return to me. Would you bow your heads? Lord, I ask that you would rend our hearts this morning. Lord, as your prophet Joel prayed and prophesied. Lord, would you do the spiritual work of softening our hearts? Lord, I pray that there are people sitting here who have never bent their knee, who for the first time this morning, Lord, that you would shine the light of the gospel into their hearts. Help them to see that Jesus is the perfect provision for their sins. Help them to see that you in love have sent your son to die in their place. Help them to trust in Jesus this morning. And God, I pray for all of your people, all of those who've already been joined to your son as we come to the table this morning. Would you do a work in our hearts? Would you remind us that as we come to the table, we are returning to Jesus? Lord God, help us to put off sin. Help us to die to self-righteousness, to, to kill gossip, to put away slander, to fight against laziness, to put away unbelief, to put away countless other sins, Lord. But in all of those things, as we come to the table, help us to remember. Give us fresh eyes to see that we are returning to Jesus. And that his arms are open wide. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.